the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Hello there. Good afternoon. 13th day of August, 5.05 on the clock. Craig Roberts on your radio welcoming you to another edition of Lifeline. We are here, low these many days, low these many years, every Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. And by golly, we, we aim to do more of the same today. Got a great program lined up for you today. A little bit later on, we're going to get an update on an interesting First Amendment rights case concerning a pastor out of Spokane, Washington, Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute, will join us coming up tonight, hour number two. Hour number one, a little bit later on in the conversation, the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek show, Bob Zadek, will join us. He, of course, is sort of our resident constitutional expert. We're going to talk a bit about the uh, the renewed call to not bear arms, but in this case to restrict arms, to control arms. And as often as that argument is made, and I certainly would agree that something needs to be done, the notion that let's just do nothing and that's going to somehow make things better, well, that was proven decades ago not to work, and yet we seem to be stuck in the same cycle. So we'll talk a bit about the constitutional ramifications of the issues of these mass shootings. I think America, I don't know whether America is growing simply... um, insensitive to all of this or just tired of all of this or maybe a little bit of both i can tell you this that so much of this goes down to a a real indictment on not only the commission the, the condition of uh humankind but where we're at spiritually and morally in this nation um these mass shootings typically bring about debate between left and right, liberal conservative, gun toters, gun haters. Uh, and unfortunately, seldom does the talk turn to anything more specific. I, we kind of generally touch it, touch upon it around the periphery, you know, the old, oh, guns don't kill people. People, people kill people. Okay, granted, yeah, the gun is the methodology, that's the weapon, but it's the person pulling the trigger that's ultimately culpable for the action. I think at the end of the day, while the inaction on gun reform laws is uh, one issue for debate, there's one issue that's up for zero debate, and that is that you can change all the gun laws in the world if you want, but if we reform gun laws and don't reform hearts, people, whether you call them mentally ill or in the, the peak of their their sin and inhumanity toward man will just find another methodology to create carnage. If it's not a weapon in the form of a gun and a bullet, it might be an automobile or a bomb or who knows what else. The culture today is one that is rampant with 
violence at every turn, death that's being glorified as to something to be wonderfully embraced and sought after and as a means of solving problems. And God, of course, we managed to sanitize him from any influence in the public arena. I'm so happy that we got rid of the Ten Commandments because we can't have our children learning that they shouldn't kill. I mean, what kind of a message will we send to our children if they were exposed to the idea that they should honor their mother and father or they should not engage in adultery or shouldn't lie? With commentary, Dr. Alex McFarland joins us. He is religion and culture expert, creator of the Truth for a New Generation Apologetic Conferences, and joins us now by phone. And Dr. McFarland, always great to have you on the program. What, what of this notion here? I, I, as I suggested, uh, we can uh, debate reforming gun laws and argue over the Second Amendment all day long, but if we don't do anything to reform hearts, Every gun law in the world or every gun gathered and melted down is not going to really make much of a difference, would it? No, you're right. And by the way, thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, I've got an article that's out today on townhall.com, and I, I spent the weekend researching some stats, uh, Craig. Think about this. From the, from the 19 teens until 1980, uh, there were roughly 205 Americans uh, killed in public shootings. From 1980 to this past weekend, or the weekend of the El Paso and Ohio shootings, half the time uh, there were over 1,400 people killed in public shootings. So in half of the time, uh, there, were, uh, there was a 700% increase in shootings. Now think about this. Uh, in, in a 70-year period, from the teens to roughly 1980, 205 people. From 1980 to 2019, 39 years, roughly half the time, 1,480-some people died. Now, people will quickly say, and I know because they tweet me and email me, they'll say, well, it's, it's racism and poverty. But one of the times of the least amount of public violence was during the Great Depression. Now, statistically, Americans of any ethnicity were exponentially less likely to die in a public violent act prior to 1980. And so I, I would basically argue three things, the breakdown of the family, the expulsion of God, and one other psychological component. But um, the bottom line, Craig, uh, this is what it looks like in a in a culture that's been scrubbed of God and morality. Yeah, you know, I, I've put forward the argument, and I referred to it a moment ago, in relationship to the Ten Commandments and the argument that went back into, my goodness, the... Uh, the early 1960s, uh, everybody remembers, or some people old enough, to, they'll, <laughs> they'll show their age, Madeline Murray O'Hare and the, the fight to remove the Bible and prayer from the public classrooms that took place. I think that decision was 1962 or 63, if memory serves me right. And um, sadly, there was very little resistance at the time. I think that the church was a slumber, asleep, and uh, didn't know that it needed or should have been responding as part of the salt and light, particularly the salt part of that obligation. And so now here we sit, 
couple of generations later, and much of the controls, so to speak, that used to be in place in the past, that you could have a reminder. I mean, I, you can't think but for a moment that if they found the presence of the Ten Commandments to be offensive because it might potentially influence somebody to consider uh, Judaism or Christianity, that uh, conversely it's true, and that is that maybe it also helped to influence more proper behavior. So, Hooray for us, we succeeded in getting God kicked out of the classroom, and here are the results. Exactly. Listen, uh, the ACLU, People for the people United for the Separation of Church and State, uh, you mentioned Madeline Murray here, American Atheists, the American Secular Union, uh, people, uh, um, people for the American Way, um, uh, the... Um, the TV producer that um, did All in the Family. You oh, Norman Lear. Norman Lear. Norman Lear. Yeah, has been such a militant secularist. The Secular Student Alliance that I've debated on college campuses. And let me say this, the National uh, Association of Educators, the Public School Teachers Union, which is overwhelmingly secular. And let me say this, uh, to a degree, the Democrat Party, um, you did this, folks. ACLU, People United for the Separation of Church and State, the blood of these shooting victims is on your hands because you've worked so hard to expunge God from American life. And, Craig, I've got to say this, and and believe me, I'm keenly aware of what the First Amendment says about the non-establishment of religion by Congress, which has been construed to mean that we have to uh, squelch all talk of, of moral truth, which is not so. But to all of these militant secular organizations that have spent the past five decades trying to erase the consciousness of God from Americans and from young people, I want to say emphatically, you did this. This is your fault. Um, people don't go to church, learn the Ten Commandments, learn thou shalt not murder, and then go out and, uh, well, well, let me say this, kids that are from stable two-parent families, and they're emotionally stable, and they've made the transition with the help of a, a family and a good community and a moral conscience, they, they make the transition from adolescence to young adulthood, they launch uh, they've, they've got a, a, a healthy sense of self, and they, they don't have the hate, the isolation, the loneliness, the hopelessness that these full-time gamers who are unemployed and live in the basement often have. Uh, they don't, you know, the kids that are raised in the traditional, stable, two-parent, God-conscious environment, they don't do these things. So, so it's not a problem of Second Amendment rights. The answer is not to ban guns. Uh, it, it's the culture where life is cheap, morals don't exist, family doesn't matter, and God can't be mentioned. That's the culture the secularists have given us, and the results are routine, regular mass shootings. Dr. Alex McFarland is with us today. We're talking about the ongoing debate following the aftermath of these two tragic shootings. And I suspect, sadly, frighteningly, there will be more before 
the year is out, before the week is out, who's to say? Uh, That's just the reality of the America in which we live today, an America that, as we suggested a moment ago, has worked hard at sanitizing itself from any of the, the controls, any of the moral compasses that would have otherwise helped to keep and protect a civil society, a God-fearing society, when you take the controls off and, uh, you know, humanity is able to run unrestrained with no direction and more, no moral compass, it's, uh, what was the name of that book? The Lord of the Flies. It's, it's, it's kind of that scenario on steroids. People who grew up in the 60s and 70s remember that as required reading um, I don't know that it made for great literature, but required reading uh, in high schools across America. Interesting story uh, that um, that kind of depicts where we're where we're at today. And along with a good dose of uh, uh, George Orwell's 1984, Welcome to America. Wow. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with Dr. Alex McFarland as this edition of Lifeline continues. Five seventeen. Let's step aside for a moment. Get you updated on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you could roll back the tape, and I really wish you wouldn't, but if you could roll back the tape to April of 20 years ago, 1999, as the events related to the shootings at Columbine High School outside of Littleton, Colorado, began to unfold, I said then, and I will repeat it now, There is too much of a culture of violence that is celebrated, replicated, and reveled in throughout film, television, entertainment in general, video games, our culture, military footing in this country since the 2001 attacks on New York and the Pentagon. Violence is all around us, and violence today now is so commonplace that the Hayes Code that existed in the 30s and 40s that wouldn't dare let you even suggest direct blood, now the gorier the better, and we have nothing to say about it, and we think that this is not going to influence individuals. Couple that with a culture of death that sees things like abortion as a means of sex selection, euthanasia as a way of checking out early if you don't want to deal with the other end of life, physician-assisted suicide, so much for the Hippocratic Oath, Um, when you combine this and a broken moral compass, and as Dr. McFarlane was suggesting before the break, a breakdown of the fabric of society today where young people grow up, families broken through divorce, there's no sense of belonging, no sense of community, no sense of direction. Why are we surprised then when people behave this way. When I was a kid, Dr. McFarland, I could get in trouble in the neighborhood, and the minute I walked through the front door that night, that's the first thing I'd hear about, because somebody else's parent knew my parents and would hop on the phone and say, I just saw Craig doing thus and such. There was a sense of community and looking out after each other's kids. That's gone, too. 
Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, um, I went to elementary school in the 70s and high school in the 80s, which wasn't that far back. I mean, it was a few years ago. But my elementary school was on a pretty major thoroughfare, and across the street was a drugstore. And I remember my teacher, um, you know, if she wanted to treat the class, she would give uh, one, of the, one of the kids, this is fifth and sixth grade, in North Carolina public schools, uh, she would give money and, and send one of us to the drugstore to get popsicles. And this is a fifth grader, uh, uh, unaccompanied, alone, crossing a major street. And I remember she was doing a, a science experiment, and she sent me to the pharmacy. She gave me a $5 bill, and she needed sodium silicate. And she said, go, they'll know what you're wanting. And as a sixth grader, I crossed a major street alone by myself, left the campus, got the sodium silicate from the pharmacist, and brought that and her change and a receipt back to Ann Heiss, my sixth grade teacher. And my, my point being that um, there was a day when we didn't live in this police state, this United States of surveillance, but um, you're right. I mean, every, every parent looked out for the other kids' parents. Um, you know, if if a mom was sick and couldn't carpool, one of the other moms would. And, you know, we, we didn't have car seats. I'm not saying that car seats are a bad thing. I'm just saying, uh, you know, there were no lawsuits. There, were, there was no molestation. Uh, it, we were just living life. Everybody was in church. Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Catholic, Presbyterian. But it was a society of morals. And, uh, sure, I, in, in my high school, I went to a high school with over a thousand kids. There was one kid in my entire high school, and I, I remember his name. There was one kid that, that got found with a joint, a marijuana cigarette. He was expelled from school or suspended for like a month. It was a, it was a community-wide scandal. And, and I know people might say, well, that was a, Ozzy and Harriet time, and that was, you know, uh, a, a Pollyanna time period. But the thing was, Craig, hanging on the wall of our library was the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Commandments, I should say. And, you know, we, we knew that, that lying was wrong, stealing was wrong. Now, some people did that, but our, our school had no metal detectors. Our school had no cop, you know, patrolling the hallways. We were taught morals from childhood up. Uh, I want to say this, Sue, and, and Craig, since you and I last talked, we had our summer camp, our apologetics camp. Uh, teens came, nearly 100 teens from seven states. And one of the things a lot of these kids talked about that's a concern to them is just the sense of hopelessness among their peers. Just the, the sense um, that there's no real um, reason to live. For tomorrow and another dynamic is isolation uh, media and technology and mobile devices have I know there's some ways they they're good and they connect you know I mean there's some connectivity apps but we're at a time where the family is broken down God can't be mentioned uh, we're not allowed to talk to kids about morals then there's this sense of hopelessness the country is irrevocably broken. 
I've got no future. And then there's this sense of isolation, and people act out. Um, young people, young, young males, very often, um, you know, young males, they want a sense of significance. The human psyche cannot exist long without a sense of purpose and place and significance. And when those are gone, uh, there's, there's very often a breaking point, and the, the, the sad result is a, a, a body count. And, and I realize I'm saying a lot of things, but folks, um, it starts with one individual at a time, one heart at a time. And if someone listening happens to be um, not a Christian, not a conservative politically, look, understand the founders envisioned a culture of morality. Religious freedom, absolutely. But a culture without any moral compass, the founders could never have envisioned that, I would say, Craig. No, I think clearly so. I mean, I, I, there's a lot that guided the wisdom of the Founding Fathers and the crafting of the Declaration and the Constitution that have served this country quite faithfully for many, many years. But I think we've reached a tipping point here. We're not even in the many we consider to be God-ordained um, sense of wisdom that they had um, in, in preparing politically our nation for the future. Could anyone have imagined that things would go so far off the rails as they have to where we're at today? And it should be a clarion call. It should be a wake-up call um, for all of us. Uh, we need to start getting serious at multiple levels. This is not a one-size-fits-all, pass this bill, all will be well. As I think you'll hear from my next guest, even the notion of saying, all right, we're going to go in and um, pass some serious gun reform laws, even including the the so-called red line proposal that's being bantied about, that in the end, if you don't change hearts, if you don't restore that sense of respect for each other, um, this is going to continue to go on unfettered, unrestrained. And it's interesting to know the comparison between our own society and those of other great nations of the past that's spoken of in past tense. Isn't it interesting to note that almost everyone without exception um, when you look at the reasons for their decline, you find out it's not because they were defeated by an enemy from the outside, but rather that they eventually were defeated by the enemy within. What's the old, is it the Shakespearean? We've seen the enemy and he is us. I may be misquoting that, but the quote is apropos nevertheless. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland, culture and religion expert. More information available on the web at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. All right, coming up on 532, we're going to get you around the corner. Let's talk about the constitutional potential liabilities here in relationship to, all right, if the problem is guns, we put more gun laws in place, will it really make a difference in just as importantly, is, to the greatest degree, any of this even constitutionally possible? Or do you ultimately see increased gun laws 
much like the need for putting locks on doors. They're very effective at keeping honest people out. Let's get a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Interesting observations by Al Mohler there that I think ideally leads into our next discussion as we continue on this vein of addressing the tragic shootings of the last couple of weeks and the way in which Congress will or more likely will not address them. Of course, the big call has been to reconsider greater, more widespread gun control laws. And I'll be first to admit, you know, I I think the notion of doing something as opposed to nothing as we have over the last 20 years is probably uh, worth considering and and spending some time talking about. Same token, though, um, there is the notion that if you double, triple, quadruple gun control laws, all you're going to do is to make sure that the people that are not inclined to break the law don't And those that are will continue to do so. What's the old adage? The locks are on doors to keep the honest people out. Syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek joins us now. Bob's program, of course, is heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. throughout the West Coast and locally here in San Francisco on 860 a.m. KTRB, The Answer. Bob is a best-selling author. He is an attorney by trade, as he kind of sneaks out in his dialogue, and uh, probably one of the foremost experts on the Constitution and the Constitution's history, certainly, that I'm aware of. And he joins us now. Bob, it's always great to have you on the show. Craig, thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. And by the way, uh, Shakespeare is rolling over in his grave. We have seen the enemy, and it is us, came from Pogo, Walt Kelly. Thank you. Not from Shakespeare. Thank you. I, I, but, knew, um, I knew somebody so would correct me. <laughs> I had a feeling when I the think minute Shakespeare, I Shakespeare. The, the moment I gave the attribution, I thought, I don't think that's right. <laughs> you know, uh, English majors don't study Pogo in college. They should study Shakespeare. But that's okay, Craig. You're allowed to slip. I do live radio as you do, and it's awfully easy in the heat of the moment. So I say that in good in with with fun and only to uh, add a friendship. And, and I appreciate that, sir, and, and certainly receive that way. All right, let's get down to cases here. Uh, we've been talking about it. The nation has been talking about it. No doubt the debate will continue. It will wane. There'll be another event. We'll re-up the, the conversation. And uh, it, it, it goes on and on and on. And I, I, I really want to drill down into first this notion. When we talk about dealing with gun control, and we talk about the need for stricter laws to give less crazy people access to weapons of this sort. Of course, one of the first things brought out is, well, uh, you know, you're trampling on Second Amendment rights. And at the end of the day, I mean, we have laws in this country, Bob, that say thou shalt not steal, and yet there are burglaries that happen all the time. Uh, We have laws in the books that say you can't assault somebody else, and yet that happens all the time. I'm not suggesting that uh, we... uh, dispose with all laws since they don't seem to work. But at the end of the day, I have to really wonder whether or not and how far we go toward implementing more restrictive gun control measures, or will the crazy person out there looking to do harm just find another weapon of mass destruction? Craig, you are, you are giving doing nothing a bad rap 
Um, I mean, you, you, when you presented the choices and you said somewhat with a inaudible sigh in your voice, well, we can talk and talk and talk and do nothing, and there was a bit of almost sadness in your tone. I would say doing nothing is the perfect alternative for lots of reasons. We start with a core libertarian, if not American principle. We cherish freedom. We cherish our right to do as we wish, so long as in doing so, we don't harm somebody else. Freedom and liberty are core, non-negotiable values. Every law that's passed, every single law, by definition, deprives somebody incrementally of freedom. Therefore, every day that Congress, every day that a legislature does nothing, we are freer than if they had done something. And uh, I always uh, enjoy and feel it important to remind people with whom I have a conversation that every, every time we discuss depriving somebody or all of us of freedom, we have to weigh the cost of denying somebody freedom versus the benefit. And the, the default rule is freedom is very important. Therefore, a compelling case must be made before freedom is deprived of us. So doing nothing is a wonderful alternative in many cases. Uh, that's just by way of introduction. Now, we, we talk about, we are talking this evening about mass shootings, uh, masses kind of in quotes, but they were substantial shootings, and there were two of them in a short period of time. Therefore, they made the media. I would like to ask you, Craig, let it, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical, just to, just to start this conversation in the right direction, in my opinion. Let us imagine, in the news, there is a school bus has a terrible accident in Portland, Maine, and 20 children are harmed or killed. And about eight days later, there is another school bus accident in Portland, Oregon, 3,000 miles away. Would you and I be spending this evening's conversation talking about what Congress must do to prevent school bus accidents? No, absolutely and not. not. And in, in fact, what's, toward, what's toward, the difference? In fact, toward that end, uh, the the point has been made on multiple occasions uh, since these two tragedies over a week ago uh, that more people die in a month in a city like Chicago from violence and gun fire than we've seen in all of the quote-unquote mass shootings since the beginning of the year. One makes the headlines, the other does not. Craig, in the past, in, in a 48-hour period, in a 48-hour period, uh, 34 people were killed in, in mass shootings. In the same 48-hour people, same 48-hour period, 500 deaths occurred due to medical errors, Two, 200 by car accidents, 300 due to the flu. So this is only, forgive me, forgive me, I'm making a point only, not minimizing the value of life, but 34 people were killed in a mass shooting. During that same period, 500 Americans 
died due to miracle er medical error. Why are we not talking ten times as much about medical errors as we are about shootings? The reason is that guns are a political issue. And there are a substantial portion of the political class in America who are determined to impose increasing gun control measures. And therefore, as Rahm Emanuel said when he was in the Obama White House, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And therefore, every time there was a mass shooting, the media, mostly sympathetic to gun control, the media has a field day. Remember media, if it bleeds, it leads. And therefore, these tragedies, and of course they are tragedies, are given disproportionate significance because of the political goals of those people in the political class. That is why we are talking about gun violence, not because it is, per se, a major problem in this country. It is a, it is, the attention we give it, the attention is manufactured, not real. I wonder if, though, Robert, perhaps part of what we're seeing here, too, is reaction to what is an increasing sense of a loss of security. I mean, for example, if I go bungee jumping off the edge of a bridge, I realize that I'm engaging in high-risk behavior, and that if the bungee cord snaps, so too does my neck, and that's the end of that story. So if I don't want to engage in that kind of level of risk, I'm probably going to avoid bungee jumping. Conversely, though, if I'm going to do something innocent, like I'm going to run down to Walmart and pick up some toilet paper, I don't expect to lose my life walking out of the Walmart store in the equal fashion that I weigh the, the risk-reward of the thrill related to bungee jumping. So is part of this reaction based on just an increased sense of a loss of security or comfort by Americans? But Americans should not feel that. As I said, uh, let's take medical errors, 500 deaths uh, in a 48-hour period. Does that Now that you know that, the next time you go into a hospital, are you going to have a, quote, sense of fear? Will you be looking over the health care provider's shoulder? Are you going to be nervous? No. You will turn yourself over to them, trust in their skill, uh, trust in their professionalism, understanding certain events in life have somewhat incrementally, marginally more risk. I do not feel any less safe going into a Walmart store. And if I do, it's not because of the reality. The statistics make the danger infinitesimal. The statistics, the objective data says, what in the world are you worried about? But the media, the hype, that's what makes you afraid. And Craig, you and I, in the archives of your show, when you were gracious enough to have me on an earlier show, we discussed an important concept, and that is that if you are part of the ruling class, if you are in the political system, you understand that if the people you rule over are fearful, they will quickly cede and allow a loss of freedom in order to feel more safe. So the, the political class, elected officials, will always 
they thrive on making us fearful because then they can quietly, and this has always been the case, we discussed this many times, it was certainly the case in 9-11. People got afraid on September 12th, and they were fearful, and therefore perfect time to pass the Patriot Act, which was a pretty dramatic loss in civil liberties. It, and we still have lost those liberties even today. Every time there is a way to make the voting public, to make Americans get fearful, that's when elected officials move in, take advantage of the fear in order to compromise rights. Japanese internment in World War II. There are countless examples. The second we are made to feel afraid of something or someone, that's when the liberties are eroded. And that's what's going on with gun control. Number one, you're made to feel afraid. Craig, you just said it. You feel you could feel a little less safe in a Walmart. So therefore, you are sympathetic and not going to resist the loss of freedom that will never come back. It will never come back. It's a ratchet that only goes one way. Every time freedom is taken away, it is never given back. Well, look at the example. You made reference to 9-11 and our our knee-jerk reaction. Quick, pass the Patriot Act. We need to empower authorities to better seek out potential threats. And what do we do? We flush the Fourth Amendment. Uh, Illegal search and seizure? Ah, Nonsense with that. And to this day, the NSA continues to tap phones without judicial warrant, and nobody says anything about it at all. And, and so, therefore, Craig, the, the red flag laws, which we will discuss, because um, I have looked at those laws and, and have a lot of thoughts on them, we will discuss the uh, red flag laws that are being discussed now in Washington and in the state houses, but they're, they're about taking away a Second Amendment protected right. That is an enumerated right, and the Constitution is extremely protective of rights that are specifically granted to us in the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights, like the right to be, to, to bear arms, like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of worship, etc. Those rights are enumerated rights listed specifically, and therefore, before government can take away an enumerated right, they are held to what is called a standard of strict scrutiny. They better make a compelling case that you have to lose your rights. And those people who are the targets of red flag laws, are they have all of the rights that the rest of us have, and therefore Congress and state houses better make a gosh darn compelling case before they take away those rights. Well, I'll tell you, what's problematic about this, uh, this notion of the so-called extreme risk protection orders, suggests, I guess, along the lines of see something, say something. In this case, if you suspect somebody, turn them in. Uh, there is immediate risk not only that they have to having weapons removed, but then let's take it a step further. If they are a big enough threat to take weapons away from them, who's to say that they couldn't use some other weapon? Go, uh, you know, use an automobile and drive into a crowd, for example. Buy some TNT and set off a couple of sticks of dynamite. The, if the threat is there, uh, how, how do you go about mitigating that threat without completely trampling on our rights, where suddenly now we as Americans are busy reporting on each other, and the police departments 
and authorities are running around either looking at unsubstantiated allegations or even a simple misconstrued conversation that's overheard in the line at Safeway suddenly now makes you a suspect and what, the police roll up to your house that night and say, give me all your guns? And Craig, uh, most and we'll discuss the red flag law perhaps a little bit later on in the show, but the red flag law gives judges uh, the imbues them with the knowledge of a trained psychiatrist to be able to hear medical testimony and make a decision whether to deprive an individual an American of their Second Amendment rights when the uh, psychiatric establishment almost to a person will concede that and this is from the New York Times I have a quote here from a psychiatrist experienced psychiatrists fare no better than a roll of the dice in predicting, predicting violence psychiatrists are now given the power to deprive somebody of their second amendment rights when as a profession they concede They simply lack the science to predict violence. Also, also, you'll never know if they were right or not. So they lock somebody up. That person is now locked up or deprived of their gun. And therefore, how do you ever prove that was a mistake? So they'll never be able to show this is a bad law. Therefore, once we pass the law... And then there's more gun violence. We'll say, okay, we have to tighten it up. We're on the right track, but let's make it tighter now. And now, if you frown and own a gun, the gun gets gets pulled because the old law wasn't good enough because there was another mass shooting. And that's what's going to happen. I defy you to find an instance where rights once taken away were given back other than, other than, by the Supreme Court finding the deprivation of rights was unconstitutional. When has a legislature on its own, without the courts compelling it, given back any of our rights? You'll not find one example. That's the fear. It's only a one-way street. And further troubling about this is the potential slippery slope here, because uh, we know how rapidly things can change from Congress to Congress, administration to administration. Who's to say that today the law is used to be able to remove so-called potential threats to the safety of Americans, and tomorrow, next year, uh, next administration, it's now being used to round up individuals that, well, for perhaps the sake of a better definition, are found to be a little bit too inconvenient to be allowed to have their liberties. I mean, a law like this can suddenly quickly be manipulated to suggest that, hey, you want a good way to round up your political enemies? Find somebody that will accuse them of engaging in talk at the bar about wanting to blow up the White House and see how quickly you can't bring them under control. Craig, you know, the, uh, to help our listeners under, understand what they hear in the news, we often hear a statistic that says we have more guns in America than there are people. And then there's always an exclamation point after that statement. What isn't said is the uh, predominance of guns is in rural America. Most of the guns are in rural America, not in the cities. Therefore, if you took a statistic of how much gun ownership is there in 
suburban and urban areas, it is incredibly low. So that statistic itself would make it seem like people are walking down broadways in medium-sized cities packing heat with, with uh, shoulders, with guns on their shoulder. It's all in rural America, and the statistics are used to make people frightened. I have always lived in urban areas all of my life, and, you know, I have never known one person, not that it comes up all the time, but it certainly comes up from time to time, I have never met anybody at work or in my neighborhood who owned a gun. So predominance of guns, if my, if my experience is any indication, nobody owns a gun. That's my experience. Yet I have friends in rural America. They have three and four and five guns, all, but there's no inner city violence. There's no gang violence in in rural areas. They own guns, but not a lot of murders. That's because they own them for sport. So statistics are used. We are so manipulated by the media and by the politicians. And this is such a hot-button issue. Um, I was delighted when you asked me to be on the show, not because I am rabidly in favor of gun ownership. I'm agnostic. I don't own a gun. I've only fired a gun one time, one bullet in my whole life. So I'm not a gun guy, but I am a liberty guy, and I am always vigilant to when Congress or when the public is using an event in order to carry forward a purely political agenda. And that's what I'm concerned about. Are you concerned, too, Bob, about the talk and relationship? I want to come back to the red flag thing for a moment. Are you concerned at all about the potential slippery slope here? Because expediency, if this is going to be effective, uh, suspecting somebody, reporting them to the authorities, the authorities swooping in and acting, whether that's taking guns, uh, confiscating weapons, putting people in jail, whatever. Are you concerned that in in the effort to try to bring about expediency in order to prevent something from, quote-unquote, happening, I'm putting my air quotes here, that what's going to happen is due process will go completely out the door and suddenly we're no longer innocent until proven guilty, but rather guilty until proven innocent? Oh, of course. In fact, in the red flag laws, the burden, what happens is anybody can initiate the process and the burden is on target to prove they are what? Not insane? They are not a threat? How in the world does anybody prove a negative? And Craig, more to the point, let's assume red flag laws get passed. There is no data. When Congress passes a law, they ought to have objective data proving that this statute, which deprives people of liberty, is will accomplish the goal. How in the world will anybody ever be able to prove that lives have been saved by this statute? It is impossible. It just means you've taken away a lot of guns. And all that will happen will be legislatures will say, ah, this month we caught 812 people and we kicked down their door at 5 in the morning and took away their guns. And that will be the mark of success, not alleged life saves, because that's not provable. But they will in include 
how many guns they took away as if that's the measure of a good statute. That's what's going to happen. They will measure success by how much collective liberty they have deprived, not how many lives they have saved. So they use the saving of life as the political cover to deprive Americans who did nothing wrong of their Second Amendment rights. That's the process I abhor. Slippery slope indeed. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. here in the San Francisco Bay Area, syndicated, but here in the Bay Area, locally on 860 a.m., The Answer. Again, that's Sunday mornings. Let me also point you to Bob's website. Lots of great resources available there, including the ability to order his latest book, The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product, now available at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. In addition to that, there's other resources as well as podcasts of previous editions. Um, His show deals with compelling issues like this every Sunday, and it's a smart and great educational alternative to a lot of the more, well, quite frankly, nonsensical talking head programs out there on television these days. The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m., 860 a.m., The Answer. Details on the web at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Our thanks to Bob Zadek for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. 6 o'clock, 6.02, actually. Let's get caught up on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.